Chapter Thirty Nine of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter Thirty Nine. Before the Opening of Parliament. Cathcart and Dyson walked together to the lodgings of the latter. Hardly a word was spoken till they entered the sitting room. Here a fire was burning, and a tray upon which were glasses and a decanter of spirits was laid upon the table. Cathcart poured himself out some brandy with the remark, "'One needs a pick-me-up after an experience of this sort. What unselfish fools we men are!' he added cynically. "'Why do we expend so much valuable emotion upon a woman who allows herself to become infatuated with a scoundrel, and only exacts interest from outsiders as a tribute to her beauty?' What does Honoria Longleat care for me? And yet I have been weak enough to make myself utterly wretched upon her account. Shall I mix for you, fellow? Dyson shook his head and sank wearily into a chair, lifting his hand with an action that was habitual to him, to brush away the heavy locks that drooped over his forehead. Presently he looked up and said in a questioning tone, I could have done nothing else. There was no other way of saving her. He resumed, seeing that Cathcart did not reply. If her father had been there, she would have been less defenseless. But I am glad that he was absent. This chivalrous sentiment is all moonshine, said Cathcart brusquely. Do you expect me to believe in your pure disinterestedness? Believe what you choose. It can make no difference to me or to her. Yes, you do believe, for you know me. At one moment I feel a mean cur, at another a fine fellow. I suppose in the abstract it is virtuous to tell lies for a woman's sake. As far as I am concerned, nothing can come of it but personal humiliation. Do you not see? I must tell her what I have done. She may charge me with the worst motives. She must show herself at the opening tomorrow. She will be congratulated upon all sides. Heavens! What a sickening farce! How will she play her part? Oh, my poor Honoria! Miss Longleat is very dramatic, said Cathcart. She will enjoy a scene. I don't think you need pity her so much. As for you, I am not disposed to be very sorry for you either. She will not suspect you of sinister designs. There is a spark of nobility in her nature. It will rise to a flame now. If you had seen her last night, said Dyson, you would have felt as I feel, that there is a gulf between us which must always hold us apart. My love for her, my pity, is deeper than I can express. Her instinct may divine what is in my heart, but she is too proud to endure compassion, and she will turn from me as though I were her enemy. Perhaps so, said Cathcart. I would not venture to predict the disposition of any woman. If I had any influence with her, I should advise her to go away with Mrs. Ferris for a time. Let her return when the Longleat and Valency scandal has died out. This would be best for you, too. And now, good night. I shall stick to my determination of going home tomorrow. I suppose you have nothing to say to me about station business. Nothing, replied Dyson. Good night. Thank you. Cathcart had made a mental resolution to acquaint Miss Longleat with the facts of the case, and before ten o'clock the following morning he was at the Bunyas, and had sent up a message begging Honoria to grant him a few moments' interview. 
he was shown into the drawing-room and asked to wait. Presently Honoria entered, tall and stately, in her trailing black gown, her face white and set, her hands nervously clasped before her. She moved very slowly. Her lips twitched, and her eyes gazed straight before her with a kind of mournful defiance. She looked as though she had nerved herself to encounter an ordeal. Cathcart began with awkward abruptness. I have called early because I wished particularly to see you before Maddox could be here. I know that he means to come. He has something to tell you. You, you are going to the opening, I suppose. Her lips tightened and a blush overspread her face. Her look seemed to say, You are cruel. But she answered steadily, No, I am not going. You ought to go. You must go, said Cathcart insistently. After what has happened, for your own sake. I do not wish to discuss the matter, replied Honoria haughtily. You are angry with me for daring to speak to you. Of course you know that I saw you the night before last. I have tried to shield you from the results of your... your imprudence. But I am a fool to trouble myself about other people's business. I had better have held my tongue and allowed Maddox to tell his own tale. It is my weakness to be officious and quixotic. I am grateful to you, said Honoria gently. You mean kindly to me but you do not understand how painful this is to me. You and Maddox are in a disagreeable position. It is air to him that you should hear the facts of the case from an independent witness. There might be danger of misconception, and he is too noble to be allowed to run the risk of that. Last night, at the dinner to General Compton, your relations with Barrington were freely discussed. You were identified as the lady who accompanied him to his lodgings. Your fair name was at the mercy of these men's tongues. Maddox rose and gave your accuser the lie. There was only one way in which he could effectually protect you from slander. He said that you were promised his wife. That your honor was his to defend. Do you not see? You may save yourself through him. That is what he wishes, only to bear the brunt for you, till all is past and forgotten. Then you may fling him off, if you please, like a glove that is worn out. You will do well to lean upon him, and you must go to the opening. You have your part to play. You are a brave woman, and you must not fail. Honoria, you are ill. You are faint. Can I call anyone? What can I do? Honoria had laid her head upon the back of a high chair and was shaking with convulsive sobs. No, go, she murmured. I have had a bad night. I do not feel very well. There was no danger of my misconstruing him. I have learned what he is at last. That is true nobility, to bear the burden for one who is despised, humiliated. It was kind of you to come and tell me, but go now, please, and leave me alone. She held out her hand to Cathcart without lifting her head. He pressed it silently and departed. For a long while she stood where he had left her, her tears falling like rain, and her bosom heaving with an emotion that was half exaltation. Could she regret her humiliation if it opened before her a vista of purer love, if it taught her to comprehend herself and him? By and by the door opened, and Dyson entered. He started when Honoria turned and faced him. He had not expected that she would be in waiting for him, and had prepared himself for some minutes of miserable suspense. His brow was moody and his lips locked. His eyes looked almost fierce, so deep were the lines between them. 
He was carelessly dressed and had the appearance rather of the explorer than of the suitor. He saw that she was painfully agitated and attributed her embarrassment to the remembrance of their last meeting. She was standing when he entered and gave him her hand without bidding him be seated. Thus they faced each other. Honoria, he began abruptly, I have come to beg that you will be present at the opening today. There is a painful ordeal before you. I would spare you if I could, but for your own sake it is necessary. Will you go? The least way in which I can prove my gratitude is to trust you and obey you, she said very low. I will do as you bid me. And who can I trust but you? You will trust me, said Dyson. Thank you. I have greater need for your confidence than you know of. I have something to tell you which will pain you deeply. You may think that I have taken an unwarrantable liberty. Indeed, I do not know how to explain. I can but beg you to believe that I acted in the only way possible, for your safety. You must know, he went on, after a moment's pause, seeing that she waited with downcast eyes, that such a thing as happened to you the other night is, was, might blast for ever a woman's reputation. I must speak bluntly in order that you may understand. The world is evil-minded and has no respect for innocency. Last night at the dinner to General Compton, it was said that you had been seen in company with Barrington. You had been recognized, and a mean cur who was present thought himself at liberty to vilify you. There was only one way in which I could shield you, in which I could silence malicious tongues. I said that you were to be my wife. It is but playing a part for a little while, and then you are free as air. The position will be sorely distasteful to you. Forgive me for placing you in it. It is only less humiliating than that from which you have escaped. Honoria looked suddenly up into his face. You make nothing of the sacrifice. This is humiliation, but it has no pain. I know. I had been told before you came of what you had done for me. Do not think that I could misconstrue your generosity. I am deeply grateful. As you say, we have each a part to act. It is more difficult for you than for me. My mind has changed, said Dyson, placing a different interpretation upon her words to what she had intended to convey. A short time ago I could not have borne this, but I have schooled myself during these months. Look upon me as a puppet, from whom nothing is expected to whom nothing need be given. It is only for two or three months, nay, weeks, for you must go away, and then all this will be past. Can you endure for a few days to be congratulated, to be asked questions, to appear with me occasionally in public? I will spare you in all ways that I can. And you must understand that you commit yourself to nothing, that whatever I might have wished once is over now, that you need have no fears, no scruples, I understand, she said very coldly, and almost involuntarily drew herself away from him. Each was fearful of wounding the delicate susceptibilities of the other, and though the hearts of both were full of yearning, they were held apart by the chill current of misconception that swept between them. There was silence for several moments. Dyson looked wistfully at Honoria. She, with still face but heaving bosom, held her gaze averted. He will go, then he said at length. Yes, she replied, I will go. It is time that I got ready. The clock on the mantel-shelf struck eleven as she spoke. It was imperative also that Dyson should prepare for the ceremonial. 
Honoria turned to leave the room, but as she passed him, arrested her steps, and murmured falteringly, He... he is better? He has recovered consciousness, replied Dyson coldly. His symptoms this morning are more favourable. There is no danger. I thought you would wish to know. She still paused irresolutely, then suddenly caught his hand and lifted to his face her eyes swimming with unshed tears. You are very good, she almost whispered. Oh, I am grateful. Don't think hardly of me. I am very miserable. Then swiftly left him. A dose of sal volatile, a toilette, and the necessity for composure are, in the case of ladies, effectual antidotes to emotion. Honoria stamped down her tremors with an iron foot and prepared to show a dauntless front to the critical eyes of her little world. She dressed herself in a black gown artistically draped with lace and placed a bunch of snowy camellias at her throat. A little black lace bonnet surmounted her fair hair. Her eyes were bright and had that smarting look which proceeds from over-excitement, and her face was very pale. But except for a slight quivering of her lips, she was perfectly calm. In the drawing-room she found her father, who was also ready to go to the house. He, too, had the appearance of having undergone some agitating experience, and of having braced himself to meet fate. His face was white, but there was a deep red flush upon his brow, and his hands twitched nervously. He advanced to meet his daughter, gazing at her admiringly and triumphantly. "'Honey,' he said, "'Dyson has told me that you have consented to be engaged to him.' and that it is all off with that cursed Englishman. Oh, my dear, my dear, you are safe now. Whatever happens, you are in good keeping. Things are going straight at last. The wish closest my heart will be fulfilled. Tell me, is it really true? It is true that I have consented to be engaged to Dyson Maddox, and I will never, of my free will, see Mr. Barrington again, replied Honoria mechanically. Her only safeguard against entire collapse lay in self-repression and in the avoidance of explanations. Longleat wistfully regarded his daughter. Kiss me, honey, before we start. Kiss me that I may know all is straight between us. No matter whether our ways lie apart or not, so long as all is well with you, I am happy. She laid her hands upon his arm and drew close to him, looking up into his face with a dumb appeal. Honey? he cried. My dear, is anything the matter? She rested her head for a moment against his shoulder and clung to him, and he kissed her, fondling with his great rough hands her neck and hair. Father, she said only, but her voice was full of yearning. We haven't understood each other, he murmured brokenly, and the tears were in his eyes. Men and women are different. There's things men can't overcome, and, and you're above me. I'm not fit. It's best we should be apart. He'll take my place, and it'll be well with you. That's all. All I care for. She understood him. It was a crisis, a farewell. They clung to each other a moment longer, then went hand in hand to the carriage, and drove together to the Houses of Parliament where the Premier's daughter, preceded by the usher of the Black Rod, took her place under the full gaze of many eyes. End of chapter 39 Read by Céline Major